Last week when we were together, we looked at God's sovereignty in exile. We highlighted the fact that God is the one who providentially used this Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar to take the people out of Judah and to bring them to his own land in the land of Babylon. And we specifically highlighted what we see in verse 2 of this book of the Bible, that God is sovereign over this entire thing. That even though it's a terrible thing that they are in exile and that they've been taken to Babylon, God's sovereign over this. He has this. You see that in verse 2 where it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, into into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. This was God allowing this. And so the context of this entire book, and what we're going to be coming back to time and time again, is highlighting the fact that God is sovereign. The people are in exile. Daniel's in exile. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all in exile. But God has this thing. God wants this to happen. And He's going to lead His children through it. But this morning, in connection with God's sovereignty in the exile of His people, and these four young men we've looked at, I want to look now at God's faithfulness in exile. Do you ever wonder if God is truly faithful to you? That God is truly faithful. Do you wonder that sometimes? When circumstances in your life come up and it's problematic and issues and cancer and issues with our children and issues with our job, God, where are you in this thing? Some of you, no doubt, are familiar with the poem Footprints, where a person likens their life as walking along the beach. And sometimes through life, there are two sets of footprints, but then there are other times where there's only one set of footprints, mainly during the high times of life. And so the person asks in this poem, Lord, why, when I was struggling, did you leave me? Why did you stop walking with me through the high times? And of course, the answer is that the Lord never stopped being faithful. He never left. In fact, that was when he was carrying you. And although I think that that poem is problematic in some ways, it shows the point, doesn't it? That regardless of the season of life that God has you in right now, and regardless of the exile that all of us are in as members of the kingdom of God, and we would all confess that right now, yes, the kingdom is present in the spiritual sense, but it has not fully been established here on earth as it one day will be, and we're in this situation in exile as members of the kingdom of God, but longing for a city that is to come like the people of old, we have to realize that our tendency is to assume that God has left us. This is our tendency when we go through hard times and we wonder, God, when I was walking through that, where were your footprints? After all, the preachers on TV say that if we only sow a few dollars and we do this and we do that, then, then God is going to reward me by taking away hard things. You sow your seed of $1,000 and then God's going to make life good for you, right? This is a demonic message. To say that simply if you give some money, that God is going to bless you with more money. And you give money, and God is going to give you a better job. So if you name it and claim it, if you have the ability and faith to do that, then Jesus is going to just take all of it for you and give you everything, take every hard thing out of your life, and it's going to be great. 
This is a demonic message. If someone on TV is asking for your money, don't send it to them. The truth is, and this is the big idea for our text today. God will be faithful to you in the exile and trials he sovereignly has for you. This is something to reckon with. God wants you to go through trials. He wants you to have struggles in his life. And it will develop your relationship with him far greater than if life is easy street. And those of you who have have trials and have had issues, you know this, don't you? You know that if, if you had never walked through this certain trial that was months or years long, you would never be as close to God as if you hadn't walked through that. And so I think the big idea, again, for this text is that God is faithful to you in the exile and in the struggle that he sovereignly has for you. This is who he, who he is. And he will never be anything less than this. That God's faithfulness is forever the same, never wavers. It's never waxing or waning. It's never dependent on even your own faithfulness. God is always going to be faithful to you. He has sent his son to die for you. How much more could he be faithful? And so as you walk through these situations, this is the way it's always going to be. His faithfulness is always there and it never goes up or down. He simply is faithful. And we sing about this, don't we? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with you. You change not. Your compassions, they fail not. As you have been, you will forever be. That is good theology. The faithfulness of God has no shadow of turning. As he is now, he's always going to be because it's always as he has been. And so for those who are believers in him, God will be faithful to you while you are in exile in this life and through the trials that he providentially brings into your life. And we honor God by living faithfully in light of his faithfulness to us. Last week we saw Daniel who was brought to Babylon. But he was brought there because, not of his own wickedness necessarily, but of the wickedness of the people and their kings. And so Daniel and his three friends find themselves living in a culture that is not their own. And the choice they have to make is whether or not they are going to live faithfully in the providence of God and understand that despite the situation they find themselves in, he is going to remain faithful to them. And so it's the acknowledgement that God, for reasons that are outside of even our understanding in terms of your great omniscience and all of the things you know about our current situation, we are going to choose to live faithfully even though we know this is a dark providence. So we just sang, and my hope is built on nothing less. When, when darkness veils his lovely face, then what do you do? I rest on his unchanging grace. And this is what we're going to see within our text this morning, a beautiful example of Daniel and his friends resting in the unchanging nature of God and trusting in him. We see the first thing that Daniel does in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, and I have these listed on the back of your bulletin. We see Daniel's God-fearing resolution. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Picture this young man in Babylon. 
torn from his home. He certainly would have seen horrific things in a deportation like this. To be ripped away from your home, the people who would have been struggling against it and the gruesome things that could have been happening. And it's not as though the Babylonians kind of came up, okay, time for your deportation. We're going to take it. It would have been a struggle. It would have been a battle. It would have been a hard thing for them to see. So this young man had seen something that is so ugly and now he's in captivity in the most powerful kingdom in the known world. And so within his short life, just about everything has been stacked against him. And we know he's young because of what we, see, what we saw last week in the first chapter. But within his life, he had seen so much already. His countrymen didn't love God, which is why they were in Babylon. The country he is currently in doesn't love or know God any more than the country he grew up in, really. He's away from his mom and dad and his rabbi and his priest and all the spiritual influences in his life. There's nobody telling him not to imbibe and to suck in what the Babylonian culture has to offer him. I can only imagine the temptation he must have had to assume, God, you don't care about me. God let him get turned into a slave for his entire life. And yet Daniel, although a young man, he stands up like a real man and he makes a resolution in his heart that he will not defile himself. I think it's easy to make a decision for God when you're sitting in a godly place with godly parents with a godly church keeping you accountable. Maybe not easy, but easier, right? But strip away the godly place. Strip away the godly influences. Strip away godly parents and church. And left to our own devices, what kind of decisions are we going to make? I think what Daniel was experiencing was, in essence, a Jewish form of rumspringer. Where he could carouse and do whatever he wanted in a new land. And Daniel makes this God-fearing resolution. And it's God-fearing because ultimately Daniel is not the center of his decisions. God is going to be the center of his decisions. He places God at the center. It reminds me of an old song that we used to sing growing up. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights, things that are higher, things that are nobler. These have a Lord, my sight. Daniel had a resolve that the delights of Babylon were nothing compared to living for God in the place of exile. Daniel and his friends understood that the only way to live godly while in exile was to be resolved about it, was to be on purpose about it. I think they understood what the psalmist said when he said, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who are in work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. And this is exactly how Daniel and his friends purposed to live in exile. They didn't want their hearts to slip toward evil or to eat the delicacies of Babylon. That just didn't matter to them. But what I want you to notice here is that Daniel made his resolution before he knew what was going to happen. Which indicates the fact that he is trusting in the Lord and the faithfulness of his God. He made his decision in faith that God was going to do the work. He knew God was going to go before him and to handle it. Daniel would choose to do what was right and what honored God. And God was going to bring about whatever he would bring about. You have to understand that there is risk to Daniel's resolution here. One author said there is always a risk to holiness, isn't there? There's always a risk to doing the right 
thing in a pagan world as he lived in and as we live in. There is a risk with refusing anything from a king as great of power that Nebuchadnezzar had. And friends, there is always a risk in choosing to live for God. The way we would phrase that now is there is always risk in being a disciple of Jesus. To take on your cross and to follow him. If the person that we claim to follow went to a cross, what could our destination possibly be? We'll see in the coming chapters how irrational King Nebuchadnezzar really was. He was definitely an off-with-your-head kind of king, wasn't he? Daniel knew he was rash. Daniel knew that his position as a captive was nothing to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knew that he had nothing significant, uh, he had done nothing significant in this life at this point to use as leverage to say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, don't cut my head off. I've given you wisdom. I've answered a few of your dreams. This is all before that. Daniel made a God-fearing resolution, and this should strike us that at a point in which he was absolutely nothing in the kingdom, Daniel resolved to do what was right in the eyes of God. Friends, have you made such a resolution? You know, we often put emphasis into our children. I said a prayer. I strung together about 25 words, and like a magic potion, it made me a Christian. But I think conversion is so much more than that. Because it is an actual going from I'm running towards sin and to do what I want to do and to live in accordance with the world and following after the prince of the power of the air and all of that stuff. And now I'm turning from that and I'm going this way. Is, is there not a massive difference there? But so often, which is, oh, children are born. It's gonna, mm, which way am I going to go? I'm just gonna, I'll wander this way. No. It is a resolution to follow Christ. It is a God-empowered opening of the eyes, bringing you from being dead to, to making you to come alive. And now I'm going to stand up like the dry bones and be, put flesh on me like you see in Ezekiel with that valley of the dry bones. And now I'm going to walk and go. And I'm going to have life. You don't wander into Christianity. God opens your eyes and you walk and you follow him with that cross on your back. That is what it is. And this is, in a sense, what Daniel is doing. He is resolved. He is not wandering into godliness. He is resolved to be godly. Have you made such a resolution? Have you made such a resolution? Does your journey of faith look more like the Israelites wandering around aimlessly in the desert? Or does it look like Daniel, a spiritual bulwark in the land of paganism? So often we worry about, well, what should we do in a certain situation? How am I going to handle this? Or how am I going to handle that? There's this problem in my family. Or my boss wants me to kind of cross this line. And it's a little blurry. But when we resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that is resolved to be holy before him, it clears up so much that would otherwise be cloudy had you not made that resolution. And so making a commitment to live in a holy manner before God, in a sense, makes your decisions easier. Because if you're going to choose to do what God wants you to do, as, as you seek to live according to his revealed will in the Bible, then you're going to see this. You're going to say, I'm resolved to follow after the Lord. And so, therefore, and, and I did that when I was a low man on the totem pole. So over the years, as I've kind of climbed up the ladder, I, I'm going to continue to resolve to be faithful. Because I made that decision way down here. 
Brian Tappel, in his commentary on Daniel, tells a story of how he knew a woman who was working at a good job. And he says that she was actually putting her husband through seminary. And it was a good job. And, and her signature and hers alone was needed on this shipment. I think it was of needles or something like that. But the needles, it turned out, were defected. And her boss said to her, there's going to be a problem if you don't sign off on this and send this shipment out. But she had resolved to do what was right. She knew that it would have been wrong. These things didn't pass code. They weren't going to be uh, 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 what were required. And so she refused to the point where her boss told her this and she ended up getting fired. Now think about this. Was that decision hard or easy? Well, it depends on if you're making the decision in that moment right then. But if she had made the decision way back, which apparently she had, to be resolved and to do the right thing, well, then the decision is easy now. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm going to do what was right. And so she, if she had allowed in her work a, a, well, that's good enough mindset and didn't care about honoring God in her work and honoring the laws around what she was shipping, the decision to ship the defective shipment is a no-brainer. Just, just get it out. Sell it. But friends, when you resolve to do what God wants you to do before the hard decisions come, it takes the question marks off. You young people who are here, I guess I'm young too, so I'll lump myself in with you. Young enough, right? Daniel is likely a whole lot closer to your age, younger people, than even my own age. Resolve to live faithfully now. Before hard decisions come. Before you decide to get involved in relationships. Before you get involved in college. Before you get involved in your job. Resolve to live for Christ now. Wouldn't so many of you say, man, if I had made that resolution at 15, how much easier life would have been without the heartache and the trial and the problems that our own sin has brought about us. No doubt many of us could give testimony after testimony wishing that we had only made such a resolution at 13 than at 33. Sinclair Ferguson says, in many ways, his usefulness in the kingdom of God throughout the rest of this book depends on this single decision. And my brothers and sisters, the rest of your life and your usefulness in the kingdom of God could simply depend on whether or not you are genuinely following after Christ and have made such a genuine resolution. Have you made a God-fearing resolution to be holy and undefiled? Daniel makes this clear God-fearing resolution. But I want you to notice, secondly, Daniel's God-trusting test. Notice the test that he gives. Look at verse 8. He says... Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel makes a resolution and then he sets in motion with his resolution as the foundation. So he says, I'm not going to defile myself. Therefore, chief eunuch, Please stop giving me the king's wine and the king's food. 
And so you see how Daniel is trusting in his king God in this decision. And you can see how the chief eunuch doesn't trust his own king, Nebuchadnezzar, with what he's being asked to do. And it may not seem like it to us, but this was a very difficult ask. For Daniel to ask the chief eunuch to do this for him was a very difficult ask because it was the chief eunuch's responsibility to feed them, to fatten them up, to make sure that they were healthy and presentable to stand before the king. And so this is a mammoth responsibility, apparently. And you can see that the consequence for the eunuch, if Daniel and his friends do not look as they should, in the end of verse 10, where he says, so you would endanger my head with the king. That's a nice way of saying, if you guys don't look healthy to the stipulations of the king, he's going to chop my head off. The consequence for malnourished, unhealthy young men would mean death for the eunuch. Can you imagine if that was levied against you at your own employment? That if you don't do a good job, then you're going to have off with your head. Tracy Jowett has the responsibility of cleaning my teeth. She's a hygienist. If she didn't do a good job in an almost impossible job, off with her head. So Daniel sets forward this test. Test us for 10 days and see if we look any worse than the rest of the servants who are eating the king's food. And take note that this is the only time in history that young men have asked to eat vegetables and drink water over drinking wine and eating the king's food. That was supposed to be funny. That's a lame. They asked to eat vegetables and to drink water. That's it. We want to be vegans. How many? Well, I don't know. Maybe some of you are. But nobody wants to be a vegan. I'm sorry. But it's usually the first thing they let you know about themselves. And you see what happens. The eunuch accepts this test. He gives Daniel and his three friends vegetables and water. And they are fatter. Look at verse 14. So the eunuch listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Okay, so this is an actual miracle, right? I know sometimes when you like hop on a diet, I know that's like, I've eaten nothing but good, healthy food, and I weigh more than I did before, right? And Daniel and his friends, they start eating vegetables and vegetables alone along with water, and they're fatter in flesh than they were Originally, and they look healthier than all of the others who were eating all of the king's food and all of the king's wine. So Daniel trusts God that the outcome of being faithful to God was going to produce our third point, a God-given appearance. The text says that they were in better appearance and fatter than all of the other young men. Eat vegetables and you'll fatten up. Friends, the only explanation is that this is a miracle. God does this. But then notice the God-honoring result that comes about in verse 16. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. So you asked for veggies and water, and that's what you'll have. This is remarkable. And let me just insert here that the point of this passage is not to say, see, stay away from wine and stay away from meat and to have some kind of... That's not the point of this. The point is simply to say, they drank water and they had veggies and the Lord worked but it's here that I want to make a very important caution the temptation when we look at an apparently incredibly godly man like Daniel is to look at Daniel and his three other friends they kind of get lesser credit but they're doing all of the same kinds of things that Daniel is doing and the temptation is to look at these men and to not look beyond them 
You have to remember that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are fellow kingdom people like us. They are fellow sinners. And so often in sermons like this, I could finish this sermon and and say that the point of this sermon is is be like Daniel, right? Turn this down a little bit. Is Is to be like Daniel. That if you're like Daniel and you resolve to do what is right, then God is going to make everything hunky-dory in your life. Like All you have to do is to be like Daniel. It'll be easy street. Your boss, like the eunuch, he's going to love you. He's going to have compassion on you and do whatever you ask him to do. Just be like Daniel and eat some veggies and drink some water and you'll be healthier and you'll look better than everybody else. All you got to do is be like him and everything will go well with you. But the book of Daniel is not here to help you to be like Daniel. The book of Daniel is here to help you to be like Jesus. That is why it's here. It's not here to get us so insulated and focused on Daniel alone. It's to lift our eyes to be like Jesus in, in as much as Daniel reflects him. And so it could be so easy for us to to zoom in our eyes here and to forget all of that. Or it could be easy to look at a passage like this and say, okay, well, there's my formula. If I resolve to not defile myself and I trust him, then everything's going to be easy for me. And that's really not that much different than the prosperity gospel that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, where if you just give a little money, then everything's going to be easy. And we begin to depend on our own works. And that God is just, that the better we are and the more holy we are, then the easier things are going to get. And that's not always the case. So often, Christian, it's actually the opposite that happens. That the boss can't stand the fact that you are ethical. Or your family can't stand the fact that you would worship God on Sunday instead of going to some family-related event. And so don't look at Daniel and think, man, all you have to do is be like Daniel and life will be easy. Let me remind you that Daniel's faithfulness landed him in a lion's den. It may go well now. This is what God has for him now. But in a couple chapters from now, his faithfulness to God does not bring about such ease. It lands him with the lion's Friends, simply resolving in your heart to be faithful to your faithful God does not guarantee you any good from the world, but it will guarantee that God will be pleased with you. And that's all that matters. So Daniel has a God-fearing resolve. He trusts in God in this test of food and drink. He experiences a God-given physical appearance. He enjoys a God-honoring result. And as Daniel goes forward in his occupation, as one who stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, he enjoys God-empowered service. Look at verse 17 with me. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Daniel's God-empowered service. Last week, we saw that these young men would be trained for several years to stand before the king. And according to verse 18, the time for training was now done. 
Last week we saw in verse 4 that they were taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans and that these young men were skillful in wisdom and knowledge and learning. But did you notice who it was that gave them the learning and the wisdom and knowledge that they needed? God gave it to them. These four men were mini Solomons. They had great insight. They had great wisdom. But it wasn't an insight or wisdom from themselves. Although they were wise people. It was a wisdom from God. To the point where they were so much better than everybody else. Why? Not because they in themselves were better than anyone else per se. But that God gave it to them. God gave them wisdom. And we can say, man, I wish I could be a Bible character and have wisdom right from God. But the Bible is clear, isn't it? In James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If you need wisdom, if you want wisdom, ask God for it. Colossians chapter 1 says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all the spiritual wisdom and understanding. Ask for it. If you lack wisdom, ask God to give it to you, and He will give it to you. Daniel himself acknowledges in chapter 2 where his wisdom comes from. He says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. Daniel acknowledges who gives it to him, and so must we. We all desperately need wisdom as we seek to follow after God. As we've made this resolution to follow after Him, we need the wisdom. And so do you have it? Do you, when was the last time you asked God for wisdom? Is it, and not in a generic sense, like closing a prayer, God, give us wisdom as we go through today. Amen. Like genuinely asking Him for wisdom in various situations. That he would give you wisdom and knowledge so that you can live faithfully and remain true to your resolution to follow after him. I want you to see that Daniel was able to maintain his identity as a believer in God. And he was able to be wise and winsome as he served throughout his life in the land of Babylon. Can you only imagine how much sludge would have been thrown around him as he is in an excessively pagan culture? And so are you. I live kind of an insulated life. I walk about 30 feet to work to come over here or I work at home. You guys are out in the trenches. Between all of you, you know so many unbelievers. And there's so much temptation for you as you go out to your workplaces and you go to the different places that you go and you're exposed to all of this. How are you living? Do you ask for wisdom? In the situations that you are in. It's so easy for me to maybe stand here and and preach this. But you're actually living it with unbelievers. With unbelieving families. And having all of those struggles. and, And you want to speak wisdom and you don't know what to say. Ask God. God will give it to you. These four men could stand before the greatest king on the planet. Because they knew who they were in the eyes of God. But notice finally with number six, Daniel's God-sustained life. And I love that this short verse in verse 21 is in here, where it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. He spent his life in slavery. In Daniel chapter 6, we see these words, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
Daniel did a God-empowered work for several kings throughout his life. And God prospered him and gave him a long life there. It was God who sustained Daniel. Again, Brian Chapel says, the rewards of holiness are, are, are guaranteed, but they are not always immediate, discernible, or even present in this life. Another author said, it is not who you are or where you are that ultimately matters in the kingdom of God. It is what you are. Faithfulness, not reputation or situation, is what counts in God's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, how are you living? Have you made such a resolution? Do you live in light of the faithfulness of God? When a dark providence comes, do you remind yourself of his faithfulness and his goodness to you? I think of Jesus and his own determination to do all that the Father willed. You read, even if you read simply through the Gospels, you can just see over and over, he wanted to do his Father's will. And this is what Daniel wants to do as well. Daniel doesn't want to do anything outside the realm of his father. And neither should we. Brothers and sisters, God will be faithful to you in exile and in the trials that he sovereignly has for you. Will you be faithful to him within them? Let's pray.